Welcome. This is Legal Wise with Ted Eccles, a show dedicated to helping you find peace of mind through being well-informed and up-to-date. We want to help you defeat procrastination and provide information on legal matters that matter to you. I'm Ted Eccles, attorney, and you can reach us at LegalWiseGA.com. If you have a legal question, or particularly an estate planning question, go to our website and write to us. We try to address questions that you, our listeners, will find interesting and helpful. You can also join us as part of our free virtual estate planning workshops. To register, give us a call, 770-506-9092, or visit our website at LegalWiseGA.com. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles, and we have a great lineup of questions today, including autopsies. Living in Testamentary Trust, People Who Overstay Their Welcome, Limited Driving Permits, and Good Samaritan Laws, and we'll hear from a special guest. So let's get started. Stefan has a question for Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. He says, I have a surgery scheduled and I went to the hospital for my pre-op visit. The nurse asked if I had an advanced directive. When I was looking at the document, it allows me to limit the ability of my agent to authorize an autopsy except as required by law. When is an autopsy required by law? Well, Stefan, it is good that you're considering completing an advanced directive for health care. This document is necessary to appoint a person to communicate medical decisions for you when you are unable to make them yourself. By having an advanced directive, you're able to decide who will communicate for you, and it minimizes the opportunity for conflict if various family members have differing ideas about the medical decision that's required. Well, here at Eccles Law Group, we help clients with their estate planning needs every week. We discuss the options in the advanced directive, including whether or not to allow the agent to authorize an autopsy. We often receive the question you ask, when is an autopsy required by law? Well, Georgia law provides that an autopsy is required where a death is the result of violence, suicide, is suspicious, particularly if the person is under the age of 16. Autopsies are also required where a death is sudden, when the person appears to be in good health, and where a person dies when in the custody of the police or in jail. An autopsy is also required in circumstances where the person is unattended by a physician when they die. This does not include a death in a hospice facility or while under hospice care. In addition, an autopsy is required on young children if their death is unexpected or unexplained. Stefan, you'll notice that an autopsy is not required in circumstances where a person dies as the result of the negligence of a doctor or hospital. Therefore, you may want to consider giving your health care agent the ability to authorize an autopsy if that would be helpful in determining your cause of death or factors that contributed to your untimely demise. But Stefan, I don't want you to dwell on the idea of an autopsy. You have a surgery planned, and here at LegalWise with Ted Eccles, we want it to be a great success. The advanced directive will allow you to appoint someone to communicate on your behalf during those times that you are unable to communicate yourself. 
Stefan, we hope your surgery goes well. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Chris has a question for Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. He asks, what's the difference between a testamentary trust and a living trust? Well, this is an important question for those of us who are thinking about creating or updating our estate plan. The idea of a trust is confusing for a lot of people. So let me first provide some information about how a trust works. For purposes of this question, a trust is a legal document that creates something like an artificial entity that can own property. By creating a trust, the grantor decides who will manage the property. That's a person called the trustee, and then decides who will benefit from the property, and we'll call those beneficiaries. As you can see, by setting up a trust, you enable your property to be owned by the trust rather than individuals. This can be very helpful when trying to take care of your minor children or protecting property for the benefit of your family. But Chris's question asks the difference between a testamentary trust and a living trust. So Chris, in short, a testamentary trust is created in a person's will and is typically funded with property that makes it through the probate process and is directed by the will to go into a trust, ultimately for the benefit of a beneficiary. A living trust, on the other hand, is created during the lifetime of the grantor and is designed to avoid the probate process. Avoiding probate is accomplished because the property is transferred into the trust prior to the person dying and is therefore not subject to the probate process or the creditors of the estate. Many people want to avoid probate because it's expensive, time-consuming, and available to the public. While wills become public record when they're filed with the court, a trust is not filed and it remains private, including the manner in which the property is distributed to the beneficiaries. So Chris, as you're thinking about estate planning, we recommend that you talk with an experienced estate planning attorney to decide the best plan for you. At Eccles Law Group, we help individuals and families craft estate plans every week. Know this, every great estate plan begins with your goals and depends on your unique circumstances. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. Renee has a question for Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. She says, My brother has a house with a basement. He and his wife recently let his brother-in-law spend a few nights in the basement after he lost his job. Now the brother-in-law won't leave. What can he do? Well, Renee, this problem clearly fits into the category of no good deed goes unpunished. Your brother was simply trying to help out a family member and now has this problem. While unlikely, it would be helpful if the brother-in-law signed an agreement saying he was simply a house guest and had no rights as a tenant or even a boarder. The reason for this is that a guest of a homeowner has very little rights. If the brother-in-law is a guest, then your brother simply needs to ask him to leave. If he stays, the brother-in-law would be likely considered a trespasser and the police could assist in getting him out. He might even be arrested for trespassing, which is a misdemeanor in Georgia. However, there are many factors that can change a guest status into a boarder or even a tenant. A boarder is someone who pays a fee for the right to stay in the property. 
This could be a daily fee or an agreement to provide some work in exchange for the right to stay in the property. As you can see, by providing some consideration for the right to stay on the property, the brother-in-law is gaining some rights that may have to be honored before you can kick him out. The next category the brother-in-law might try to establish is that he is a tenant and your brother is a landlord. Some factors the court will consider include the length of time that he's lived there, the frequency he provides compensation to your brother, whether the brother-in-law moved furniture into this home, and whether the brother-in-law has established residency there. If the brother-in-law is considered a tenant, then the law may require that your brother go through the eviction process, which can take considerable time. Renee, this is a tricky area of the law. Legal-wise with Ted Eccles would suggest that your brother seek out advice from an experienced attorney and review all of the facts and circumstances with the attorney before taking steps that could prove harmful to your brother. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles, and we have a special guest with us today, Morgan Tab from Tab Insurance. Now, Morgan, you work over in the Conyers office of Tab Insurance. Is that right? Yes, sir. Great. Tell us a little bit about um, what y'all do there. Well, we are an independent agency. Uh, a lot of people will refer to us as brokers. So we contract with multiple insurance companies. Gives us a broad set of resources to work from. Uh, we've been in business since 1954. Um, while I do work out of the Conyers agency, we've got several across the state. Um, we manage thousands of clients. And we're a property casualty agency. So we work with uh, personal and commercial property and liability needs. And that's the, that's the short and sweet of it. Okay, well, let's just jump right into our first question that I have for you. Here at Eccles Law Group, we represent a lot of businesses, and we get questions about um, protecting uh, li on, and on liability issues and property damage issues. And I've heard some businesses who own their own office or shop uh, being visited by an insurance company representative and receiving some instructions or directions about removing trees or making other improvements to their property. Is that a standard procedure for business uh, policies? Yes, sir. It can be. A lot of that will be dictated by the type of risk, the type of business that you're involved in or the conditions of your property. It can also encompass a lot more than just the property aspect. If you're a manufacturing plant, they may want to see what kind of controls you have in place to, um, to you know, protect you from product liability suits. Um, but I think the insured should look at this as a benefit, as just kind of a, a risk management technique to have professionals come in that do this day in and day out and maybe able to point out certain risk that the insured may not have been previously aware of. And it can happen prior to binding a policy or after binding a policy, but uh, that can be a very common exercise. I know that it can be tempting for a business owner to say, well, that's an, an added expense just for me to, to secure this policy and then be tempted to not follow those recommendations. What are some of the consequences if they don't follow those recommendations? 
Well, sometimes the recommendations are just that. So the underwriter would be noting their file that they've, you know, pointed this stuff out and made it aware to the insured. Um, you know, of course, that's going to go in the file. So keep in mind that that could come up in the event of a claim. But uh, if it's something significant that they really want corrected, they'll make it known. And there's a period of time after a policy is bound that an underwriter has the ability to cancel coverage. So if you don't follow a recommendation that was, well, let's say a requirement in lieu of a recommendation, then they can cancel your coverage within that binding period. Hey, we have some listeners to LegalWise, I am sure, with Ted Eccles who own dogs, cats, and maybe even farm animals. So if someone is injured by one of our animals, is it covered by our homeowner's policy or should we consider getting some sort of rider or other policy to cover possible injuries caused by our animals? It is generally covered under a homeowner's policy, whether that homeowner's policy is a renter's or a condo or a true HO3 homeowner's policy. There's an aspect of personal liability that's built into those policies. And um, it is very inexpensive to bump that up from, say, 100000 to 500000 So I would purchase as much liability as you can afford. But um, most standard preferred insurance companies, so I'm talking about travelers, Liberty Mutual, um, auto owners, <clears throat> will not exclude animal liability under that. If you have a non-standard policy through such a, like a Lloyd's of London type policy or Scottsdale, it is possible that animal liability is either excluded or limited under the personal liability. So be sure to ask your agent or read your policy to make sure that it's appropriate for your exposures. Um, but yeah, if your dog bites someone, you're liable for it, period. And um you, you want to make sure you have sufficient coverage to um, cover that. We're dealing with one of those issues right now. Okay. <clears throat> you know, there are non-traditional places where I'm finding pets. More and more, I'm walking into small businesses and, mm -hmm. and there's a dog laying on a rug or cats wandering around the shelves, you know, of a bookstore. Are these uh, animals and the injuries they may cause covered by the business's liability policy? They can be the same, same fashion. Um, so read your policy, make sure there's not a limitation or an exclusion on it. Um, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's, it needs to be the owner of that pet. That's where the first line of defense is going to come from. But uh, in the case I just previously mentioned, there's a business owner where a patron had a dog and it bit a person's hand. It broke it in three places. They have over $100,000 in medical bills accrued without major medical insurance. And that business owner is now triggering their policy to respond to some of this um, because the pet owner's policy has have they've exhausted their limit, which was just a hundred thousand. So it could be fifteen dollars more a year to go from a hundred thousand to three hundred thousand, or maybe twenty-five dollars more a year to go from that one hundred thousand to five hundred thousand in personal liabilities. So just bump that up. Okay, yeah, that's great information. Can you talk about if there's any special policy issues that business owners should consider involving? We'll call it 
health-related or um, disease-related liabilities such as infections or viruses, and more particularly, if, if a patron of a business might become infected uh, with COVID and want to initiate a claim? Well, um, yeah, hot topic. Uh, the, from the insurance side of things, the news is not that great. Um, insurance companies want no part of that. Uh, and I can understand where they're coming from. They, they're an industry that um, is trying to make a buck just like you and me. And they don't want to be the sole fallback for a global pandemic. So there are policies, the general liability policy that would respond to bodily injury suits. Um, most of them have a communicable disease exclusion. And that's very clear language that COVID or any other infectious disease, they do not want to respond to a suit of that nature. I, there may be a policy in the works out there that's, that's trying to tackle this. I am not aware of it, though. Um, I, I haven't learned of anything about that. I'd be surprised if there was just because it is such a, it's a pandemic. <laughs> right. So. That does bring to mind why it is so important that the legislature has adopted that immunity from liability for businesses if they post that warning that we see so often when we go to a restaurant or a business, because it does um, allow a business owner to protect against that liability if they put that posting up. And that's um, really a quite an easy way to limit liability, isn't it? Yes, I, I, I love that. I, I think that's great. I mean, as you're aware, there's other ways to mitigate your risk through contracts and hold harmless agreements and things of that nature. Um, and I'm sure you can speak to how that stuff would hold up in court, but um, yeah, that's, there, there are other protections out there to help small businesses protect them from suits arising from COVID or other infectious diseases. All right. We've been visiting with Morgan Tab of Tab Insurance. Thank you for joining us today, Morgan. And tell us if a listener has more questions about insurance, how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, thanks, Ted. Um, well, we're, we're online. It's tabinsurance.com. They can uh, call us at 770-483-1800. Uh, they have specific questions for me. My direct extension is 32. And uh, email is info at tabinsurance.com. Okay, thanks, Morgan. You're listening to Legal Wise with Ted Eccles. Yona has a question. She says, my daughter received her driver's license at the age of 16. The driving permit indicates that it is a Class D license. I understand that she cannot drive after midnight. When she turns 18, does that limitation still apply? Well, that's a great question, Yona. Having teenage drivers in the house presents lots of opportunity for anxiety and stress. Even Georgia Law recognizes that young drivers lack experience and need the opportunity to improve their skills prior to being given the full authority to drive that's otherwise enjoyed by adults. The typical license issued to young drivers after they have successfully completed the learner's license requirements is a Class D license. This license allows the young driver to drive without the instructor or the parent in the car, 
but has numerous other limitations. The Class D permit holder is not permitted to drive between midnight and 5 a.m. Evidently, the state of Georgia believes that young drivers do not need to be on the road after midnight. During the first six months of having the Class D license, the young driver cannot have anyone in the car other than a family member. After six months, they're allowed to have other passengers, but there are some age and number restrictions on those passengers. That brings us to your question, Yana. Until the Class D driver actually applies for and receives a Class C license, they continue to be subject to the limitations of the Class D license. There is no automatic transition to a Class C license just because the young person turns 18. In addition to the requirement that the driver be at least 18, a Class D license holder's driving record must be free of certain driving offenses for at least 12 months. So Yana, your daughter must continue to comply with the limitations on the license until she successfully applies for a Class C license and is issued that new license. Thanks for the question. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, visit LegalWiseGA.com. A few years ago, my family and I were riding along the highway and we observed a car pull out in front of a motorcycle. The driver of the motorcycle attempted to stop, but couldn't and ended up hitting the passenger door of the car. Unfortunately, there was a young passenger on the motorcycle. Upon impact with the car, the young girl passenger was thrown up on top of the roof of the car, slid over the car, and then onto the pavement on the other side of the car. To our amazement, that young girl hopped up and ran around the car to check on the driver of the motorcycle who appeared somewhat injured. Many people stopped, and we called 911 to report the incident. And this raises an important legal question. For those people who were rendering emergency aid to the driver, what protections are offered to them under the law and where they are trying to help out there on the side of the road? Well, this is typically referred to as Good Samaritan protections. Under Georgia law, we want to encourage people to render assistance in emergency situations without them having to fear being sued if they accidentally do something that results in further harm. For example, what if they move a person who has a spinal injury and it results in a person being paralyzed? Well, the general rule is, is that if a bystander attempts to render aid in an emergency situation where there's no compensation being paid, then that person is protected from civil liability. This is even extended to medical personnel who are off-duty and offer help. So off-duty paramedics, doctors, and nurses don't have to worry about being sued for malpractice if they choose to render aid on the side of a road, even if the aid they provide ends up causing more harm to the injured person. This rule applies so long as they're not getting paid for their service. These rules have been expanded in recent years to include amnesty or protection from prosecution in situations where there's a drug overdose or alcohol poisoning and a phone call is made to 911 or law enforcement is otherwise contacted in an effort to render aid or save a life. Thankfully, in the motorcycle crash we observed, several people stopped and immediately began helping out the motorcycle driver and the young girl. 
As you're traversing Georgia's highways, if you observe an accident or find someone in need, know that you can render aid and help out even if you don't have medical training without fear of being sued for your good deed. You're listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. If you have a question, go to LegalWiseGA.com. You've been listening to LegalWise with Ted Eccles. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or want more information, contact us at LegalWiseGA.com or give us a call, 770-506-9092. While legal advice can help, we know that true peace is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Join us next week as we answer more interesting questions from listeners just like you. The information, comments, and opinions expressed in Legal Wise with Ted Eccles do not constitute legal advice. The topics discussed and opinions given are general in nature and not intended to create any legal relationship or opinion about specific circumstances. No attorney-client relationship has been or will be formed by any communication or legal discussion, and no representation is made regarding your particular legal rights. For legal advice, contact an attorney actively practicing in your jurisdiction.